0: And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. All right, now it's my turn. Thank you, Kayla. Um, Well, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And uh, speaking of of making mistakes, actually, I want to start off this sermon to go on record and say... I made a mistake last week. And so uh, Roland was the just the most wonderful and loving deliverer of this news because um, he came up to me and he said, Andy, that was... Uh Almost historically accurate, you know, and uh, reminded me that somehow I'd taken two King Herods and kind of made them into one in my mind, and therefore, uh, you know, misguided us as to which direction Jesus was traveling and such. And uh, I, I'm glad to say I don't think it changes the point of the sermon. Roland agrees, and I thank him for that uh, affirmation. But at the same time, I uh, I do take uh, this teaching seriously, and I. I'm bummed when I do something like that. So, just wanted to apologize for that and say uh, if you would please mentally edit uh, what what you heard last week slightly, um, I would appreciate it. So, now uh, getting on from that, there you go. So, thanks all for uh, for your understanding. So, this week is when Jesus calls your name, and so, of course, you heard what Michaela just read, and it wasn't such a so much a story of Jesus. Um, knowing their names specifically, but this is this idea of him knowing who he was calling and engaging with their whole person, with who they really were. Um, He called them with a knowledge of them. Uh, He exhibits his familiarity with their jobs, their vocation, with what the cost of following them was going to be. He knew where to find them. He knew what to say, and he had the power to actually uh, encourage them to change their lives in just a, a, a very... Split second, um, and what a gift we have today is a story uh, that Temet will share with us toward the end, actually not yet tomet I said I faked you out by saying I was going to mention your name, but I just want to want to say i 'm so excited that later in the sermon Timet is going to share with us something too about this idea of calling by name, but the simple game plan today is just to unpack what is the call of Jesus and then uh, the response of a disciple that 's it what 's the call of jesus look like what 's the the response of a disciple so the call. Um, I want to start by just acknowledging something. This is going to be to kind of like open up the theological um, wormhole, and then I'll close it. Um, so don't worry; we won't spend much time there. But um, but it is an interesting thing to think about: who calls who in this passage, and um, who has the power. To, to make a change. There's a, there's a lot going on in this passage. So Andrew uh, is kind of where it begins. We think that he was a disciple of John the Baptist, and Peter, um, who is here called Simon, um, is in fact his brother. And so he might have already been familiar with Jesus, or uh, most likely was, and maybe even met him and spent time with him already uh, from what we could tell. And we know that John the Baptist had pointed his disciples to Jesus. He was preparing the way for Jesus. We've learned about this recently. And so he, that he had sort of set this up in a way, especially for Andrew and Peter. So if you, if you were just to read, I could as a pastor do, do this move where I could say, like, look, here comes Jesus. And he says, "Follow me." And they—they they just, you know, supernatural power. Boom! They—they they follow him. And I might be able to have a nice, clean doctrine of predestination, um, just right there in that very text. And so, some of you know what that is. Some of you don't, um, or, or if you don't, you're really quite lucky. It's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's a wormhole. Um, but um, but but to some degree, it'd be like determinant determinism, which would be to say that like, do you have a choice? And uh, the Bible isn't. Supremely interested in helping you parse that out um, there 's a lot there um, and uh, and i am not i 'm not speaking against it i 'm just trying to say um, there 's a lot more to it right, and a lot that is mysterious to us by the way, this whole idea of determinism is a problem if you're in the faith or if you're not, because actually uh, a lot of people who aren't believers are starting to say things like, well, we don't really uh, choose as much as we think we choose. So that's a dilemma just in philosophy. Anyway, Jesus comes to find these fishermen, though, and they are cast, at least the story is told to us, that they are just doing their job. They're fishing, they're at the lake, um, the sea. And Jesus comes and just calls them but this story is presupposing so much more, um, so much more. It's saying um, the, these people are, are just, um, well, they're encountering Jesus in this moment, but there's all this groundwork that's been laid. These are young Jewish men, right? A young Jewish man, a young Jewish boy would have learned the scriptures and they would have memorized scripture and they would have had some like investment into their lives that prepared them for receiving spiritual things. Andrew and Peter, at least, were very intrigued by the message of John the Baptist. And so they were going on to some other level of interest in what God was doing in the kingdom of God, in the the Messiah, the savior figure that that Israel was expecting, that, that that savior figure was coming. And they may even have believed that Jesus was that savior figure at this time when he comes to them at the sea. And these facts exhibit a certain amount of spiritual sensitivity, which, by the way, was not necessarily the story of all of the disciples. Matthew's story feels a bit different. It feels like he was kind of in another lane, and Jesus comes to him and interrupts it, but we still don't know what was going on in Matthew's heart and in his thoughts. When he began to ponder his life, we don't know as much as God knows or Jesus knows, Some of the disciples were searching and some of them, we don't have the whole story. Nathaniel is another interesting one where Jesus seems to know about things he was doing when Jesus wasn't in the area. And Nathaniel is kind of mind blown by that and pays more attention to Jesus. Um, So perhaps an outside observer would say these people weren't searching at all and Jesus just came up to them, but their response seems to exhibit that there was more going on. And we even can get those hints In their stories, that they had thoughts and questions, but only God really knows, right, what was going on in their lives. So there's a bit of mystery that surrounds all this idea of calling, and there's some chicken in the egg, you know, does the calling come because I'm asking questions, or does the calling come because God has enabled me to ask the questions, and a lot of, of this gets into what the old theologians called first and second causes, and this was their incredible way of saying it's both. It's just both. The first cause of things is God, and the second cause of things is you. And they are both happening. And they are not violating one or the other. So you're not really going to be able to claim that you have, uh, you know, decided something that wasn't within God's will. And God has no interest in taking away your freedom to think and process. These two things can happen simultaneously. An incredible example of this, right, would be the, one of the most profound moments, and it's the reason we're all Christians, right, is that the disciple Judas decides to betray Jesus and colludes with the Jewish authorities, who then hand him over to the agents of the Roman Empire to kill him when he was not guilty of the crimes that they were accusing him of, right? And they do all of these things. And there is a certain amount of responsibility that they have for all of those choices. But we can go back and look at these like seed ideas in Scripture from hundreds, if not thousands of years beforehand, and see that God intended to do exactly this all along. These don't have to be one or the other. It can be both. And it is both. There's, there are even hints in, in the book of Acts that the blood of this man that you killed is on you, even though God had always been going to do it. And so I won't be cleaning that up for you. Not today. But I figured I should just uh, just acknowledge that when you read something like this, it can bring up all those questions. And those are, those are great questions for a philosopher. But this story um, is not trying to do that. It's really not. Um, we tend to ask these questions philosophically. I think it's really important. It's okay to do that. That's, that's a great thing to go chase down. We can almost treat it like a science, like that, there's a, you know, a science to scriptural you know, wisdom that we can figure out like, all the answers to that and therefore get it and have faith. And essentially my whole sermon today is to say, no, that is not how you have faith at all. It's an okay thing to do, but it's not having faith. Um, so how does it work? Um, you know, we, we, we want to figure this stuff out. Mark writes these punchy little stories. I've been talking about this. It's an ancient biographical form, and they're meant to teach us something. So he really spares his words. He really reduces the stories down to their core. And what he's trying to, to get you to think is, what does it mean and what do I do about it? That's what an ancient biography did. It got you to think, What is this character experiencing and what do I do in response? And so that's what he is doing for us. He's saying, Jesus called these disciples. I really believe this, Mark, later, and Peter is behind it. And Peter is one of these disciples. Jesus called these disciples. Is he calling you and what do you do? That's what you should be asking. Um, In this story, if we were to read it and ask, how do I go and do likewise? We wouldn't be Jesus in the story, right? we would be the disciples. So what do we do when Jesus shows up and calls you? When Jesus says, follow me, do we try to analyze that or do we respond to that? I want you to tuck that question away for a bit and think about it and think about this, right? Have I sensed before that Jesus has called me to follow him? To believe, to act, to commit to something, to make a change in my life. Has Jesus called me to follow him? And let's think about that as we frame this question a little bit further and ask, who would he call? Is he calling someone like me? What do I do? How do I respond? I want to dig into some of the, like, illuminating details. Remember I said Mark is He's sparse with what he chooses to include. He's not trying to tell a whole history like our modern biography. He's using certain details, but they matter a lot. That's what, the ones that he chose matter a lot. So he knew where they were. Um, they were at the Sea of Galilee, right? And I always like to kind of anchor this in Google Maps so you can remember, like, this is not a mythical land. It's that, you know, uh, Tiberias right over there. There's that body of water. That's the Sea of Galilee, And he understood what they were doing at the Sea of Galilee. He understood that these were fishermen and he approached them as such. And he understood that they had an inclination to have a spiritually significant life because he said to them, follow me, which, and he's a teacher, he's a rabbi. And so that they, they know that this is significant. And he says, we're going to fish now for people. And they they seem to to have a sense of response to this idea. We're going to get into this um, a little bit more as we go. The research that I did illuminated something that I didn't really realize. So a lot of times the Bible is sharing um, interactions or or events that correspond pretty well to what's going on in, in ancient times. It's interesting, you know, a modern example of this would be Somebody would be like, oh, I like the old Christian songs, the hymns, you know, they're great. And then somebody else pipes up and said, did you know that those were bar songs that were remade? And they're like, no, they weren't. Yes, they were, right? And, and so the truth is, right, that, yeah, Christians took the songs of their day and they put new words to them so that the culture could hear it, right, and could be, be interested in it. Well, same things happen in the Bible all, all, all over the place. So some of the ancient law code, like even the, these commandments that Mike was talking about, if you look at ancient, the ancient world, this group of people were not the only ones that got ancient law codes. And there were a lot of similarities and covenants. So you can look at the covenant of Abraham. Well, you can look at the covenants of the Hittites. I got to see one of these in the museum in London. It was so cool. I couldn't read it. Um, but I, you know, but it was, it was cool to see like these formats, these covenant format mats of the ancient Hittites that predate, you know, some of these events are similar but with some key differences. And actually, they become more meaningful when you see the differences. You see that God is not going to put the judgment of breaking the covenant on the person, but on himself. That's a shocking change. But the format looks a lot like the ancient document. He used a form that already existed, okay? So, why do I say that? This moment right here with Jesus stands out in all ancient rabbinic literature as a unique moment. So the, when rabbis would invite people to follow them and become their student, there's a lot of data on what that looked like. There are a lot of stories of how that happened. And this one is different. It's very different. Um, it, it's kind of one of a kind, scholars say. It's, it stands alone. And one of the things, not, not the only thing, but one of the things was the type of person that's being called to follow him. he's not picking somebody who's shown themselves or proved themselves or already has studied and and seems like they're on the right track. He's going straight to the sea of Galilee to, to fishermen and saying with, with no, you know, evidence that they're ready or they're going to be great. Just follow me. And they do. And, And it's a unique, a unique story. He knew, uh, he knew their field of work. I've got a, I've got a picture of, of the fishermen here. Um, and so this is probably what they were doing. We tend to think uh, they were on boats, but actually the way, the way it's framed, they were probably casting their nets. They had these round nets that they would kind of cast it in and, and pull back and try to catch fish that were near the shore. And he understood um, what, they were, what they were doing. Um, some have said, and, and maybe even myself at this point, that they were fishermen. So Jesus is choosing like the poor. He's choosing the the least knowledgeable, and this isn't necessarily true. Actually, this story gives us some little hints in the fact that James and John, he, they left his father with the hired hands. It actually seems like these, these are families that owned fishing businesses, and actually selling fish at market at this time was, was kind of lucrative. So they weren't, they weren't the most wealthy, they weren't dirt poor, but they weren't on the path of being spiritual rabbi's students. In fact, actually, this nuance brings out the fact that maybe to follow Jesus, they were actually going to lose something. They didn't necessarily just get called up into something greater. They might have gotten called out of something stable into something unstable, out of something that their parents had worked for generations to create for them into the absolute unknown. Jesus isn't necessarily calling them into a higher vocation um, though it might be, they, maybe they thought there'd be some respect or glory there, but one that would be more unpredictable, and that could they and they would have honestly known this from looking at like revolutionary figures in the last, you know, hundred years of their country's existence. It could cost them their lives to follow this new and kind of radical teacher. Another interesting detail in here is that the word for you know asking them to come follow him when when Jesus comes to Andrew and Peter he just kind of says, you know, follow me. We're going to be fishers of men. But to James and John he calls. The, the word becomes call and the, the Greek word there is kaleo and the interesting thing about that is that's the word that's used elsewhere especially in the book of Mark for conversion for when somebody becomes a believer and he changes the word. And it seems to be significant. Commentators think he's kind of hinting that this is like the, one of the early calls to actually change your life, to convert from one way of life to another. So when James and John leave their father, it's more significant with them, right? They're leaving their father with the boats and the hired hands. He's calling for them to convert. Not necessarily they wouldn't have seen it as like, oh, convert to Christianity, but convert from what you were doing to following me change from doing what you were doing to following me. Um, so I, I, hope, I hope that makes sense. He's, he's not just saying, hey, come on over here. This is a, a radical call. And the words for follow me are pretty radical too. They mean like fall in line and it's, it's almost military. Like I'm your commander, get behind. And so it's this idea of devotion. It's beyond just a curiosity like, hey, come listen to me. Let's hang out. It's like, hey, line up, we're doing something different. It's it's pretty bold. It's significant. Convert, line up, which leads to the fact that Jesus, I think, understood more about them than we realize. Um, elsewhere in the Bible, we learn that, you know, James and John are, are uh, they have some ambition, you know, the sons of thunder or something like that, right? That they're they're ambitious guys. We learn elsewhere, um, their mom kind of goes to Jesus and is trying to say, hey, um, my sons, prominent positions, please, right? Can they, can they be kind of your top tier lieutenants, right? And Jesus um, doesn't really, he doesn't grant that. He, he, he doesn't say no, he doesn't say, it. he said, it's not up to you, you know, it's not, this is not how we're doing this. Um, that's not how you become great in this kingdom. You don't excel and position yourself in this kingdom you serve. But they had some aspirations. And I think Jesus knows this. And I actually think this direct and bold call even ties in with some of their aspirations. He knows that they have an inward stirring to do things that matter. And so when he calls them, he, he calls them to something great, something they don't expect, but but he knows there's a stirring within them. I think he knows that Andrew and Simon have been listening to John the Baptist and that that there's something going on within them. And I think this adds deeper meaning to the whole event. He knows that they're fishermen. He knows that they're unlikely, but he also knows that something's going on inside of them that's unique. And he's calling that out of them. Finally, last detail, it's impossible to escape the language of the sea in the Bible, and again, commentators uh, that I read thought, said it, it. Whenever the sea comes up, ancient people knew what it meant. So we think of the sea, we think of vacation, right? We think of the sea and we think of a cruise or something like that. They, what did an ancient person think of? This is this this uh, image is absolutely not it, but it's awesome, and so I think it totally works. Um, this, you know, they clearly didn't think of like winged beasts and warships. But they thought they thought of some crazy stuff. Like when they thought of the the sea, they really did think of monsters. They thought of chaos. They thought of things that lived underneath that were not safe. And so the reason I liked this image was like, this is like humanity attacking the chaotic sea monster, right? Like they they thought more in these terms. That brings the book of Jonah to life, doesn't it? It br- even brings the the creation account into into light. like that the sea is like, you know, it has to be like, um, that, that the spirit of God is hovering over. But it's like this mystery space. It's, it's the unknown. And so for him to say, we're, we're going to be fishers of people, that we're going to draw men and women out of the water, right? Like that's the imagery he's giving. Clearly they know they're not, they're not throwing nets over people, right? They're not going to go into Jerusalem, you know, hide behind the gate and be like, ha-ha, But what they would have thought of is like, we're going to be drawing people out of the waters. We're going to be drawing people out from under judgment, probably. And what do I mean by judgment? Um, Well, I, of course, do mean God's judgment. I mean, Mike was talking about up here, like with the kids, the the commandments. and, And to the believer, the commandment is a gift. It's how you know God. It's how you please God. It's how you respond to God. But if you don't know God and you hear these commandments or you sense them within your soul, they are judgment, right? This is not, I can't live up to this. that. It feels oppressive. It's, it's why people are like, get the commandments off the courthouse, right? Because like, like ah, it's too much for me, Right? We ought to be like God. We ought to be holy and blameless, but nobody is. Paul says, nobody is righteous. No, not one. So if you don't have a sense that you've been made righteous, that righteousness has been given to you, they are oppressive and scary. But you don't have to be convinced of God to know that you're under judgment. That's why I think we respond with so much angst towards God's laws. I think we battle this inner and outer voice, these subtleties that remind us that we aren't enough. We aren't lovable. We aren't good. If you slip up publicly, what are you afraid of, right? You'll be judged. People will see it. They'll see the truth. They'll see that you're not great. They'll see that you stink. They'll see that you're really kind of disappointing. And this is often evidenced not only by you know, what we worry about from others, but what, what we do ourselves. Um, I am so. I've seen this. I'm so convicted of it myself. Are criticisms of others, right? Uh, you've heard me say this. We hate in other people what reminds us of our flaws, right? We we do. Often, uh, an old theologian. I and I really need to find the quote. I was googling around trying to find it. I read it when I was in my um, old seminary program, and I read a lot of old books. But this was so good, and I'll never forget it. He said, "When you see a critical person, that that criticism." is a signpost, I tell you, to their deepest sin. Their own deepest sin. When they're criticizing somebody else, it's a signpost to their own deepest sin. And ever since I've read that, I've seen it. I've just seen it over and over. It's often a signpost to their deepest struggle. So you find somebody who's always calling people out. Like, who are they calling out the most? There's something in them. I see it in myself Guys, I, I can't stand people who talk too much. <laughs> see, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, what does it mean? It means I, I, feel, I feel the judgment. I, and, and it's way easier to move it out toward other people. We can see it. Um, we see that others are drowning under it. And living in chaos, and Jesus is looking at Andrew and Peter, and he's saying, follow me, and in following me, we're going to draw people up and out of the chaos and the judgment that they are under. We're going to bring people out from the judgment and into freedom, Um, out of the darkness, into the light. And this is one of those moments where the stirring within them is met by the all-knowing and soul-piercing eyes of Jesus. He's coming to them, he knows them, he knows they have a sense they ought to do something with their lives and, and he's calling them to be a part of what he's doing in the lives of others. It's a, it's a profound moment. So back to my questions, I assume by your being here that God has done this in your life or is doing so and maybe you sense it. Um, so think about it. What is it that I feel compelled toward? What is it that stirs within me that I'm supposed to be doing, that I'm supposed to be a part of? That's not just the result of, you know, your evolutionary biology. I mean, honestly, uh, the, the, the way that our world frames, like, life, you would protect yourself, you know, look out for you and your, and your beloved and really ignore everybody else. When you feel a movement toward others to sacrifice, to bring healing, relief, faith, hope, and love to others, that is a foreign and divine idea. And you should listen to it. So what are you doing with it? Have you considered um, maybe I'm supposed to do something for other people? And then if there's a God who's made us, what would it mean to not only go, well, I should do things for other people, but I can Follow God, follow Jesus in what he is doing in the lives of other people. And to do this best, we need to devote ourselves to God, learn from him, follow him, and ask how is it that we could draw people up and out of the chaos that we experience in our lives? Uh, We had a youth listening session uh, here the other day, John and Cruz uh, put it on. And uh, this is an addition to the sermon that came out of it. So good job, Cruz. That was, uh, and John out there. Um, that was, you, you've helped me by hearing some of this stuff. Some of these, these younger people were wondering, what does it mean for God to call us? They'd heard different things in different, in different churches, different places. Is it this idea that there's like, some people have a big divine calling, you know, like some, that, that's a sense we can get. Like there's the called and there's everybody else. And the called do big things and everybody else does you know, they just go to, go to their work and stuff. Um, I, I, would, I would just like to say there's a lot of ways the Bible talks about calling. Um, and, I, and I'm going to name four, and I think they're all significant. He has calls to all people. You could read these like, this is especially stuff like at the beginning of, of the Bible in Genesis. Like, all people are called to rest and worship God. Every single one. All people for all time. All people are called to work and develop the potentialities within the world, to go into the world and to have dominion, which means like loving care. So that means you should work and you should do things that matter. That's a calling to all people. And then there's a calling to marriage, actually, uh, at the very beginning. And I don't think that's simply just like get married and have kids. I actually think that's a calling into human community and institution building, I think that's how it works out. I think government descends from this idea. I think that business descends from this idea. Every entity in which people work together for the good of others and actually create life and steward and govern over one another comes down to this. And people are called to do all of these things. So that's a call to all people. Then there's the times in the Bible where there are calls to believe, where God like, is engaging with somebody, meeting them in that moment of the questions they're asking, the passions they have, and, and saying, follow me. I have, I've told that story of, in my life of being 17, and finally that, that call clicks, where it's like, I'm not just going to show up, I'm gonna start walking with Jesus. Um, then there's, I think, can be a call to actually like, fully engage. I think this is kind of what's going on with Andrew and Peter, Uh, and maybe even James and John here. This idea that's like, hey, don't just believe, give. Don't just believe, offer what you have. Don't just believe, draw people out of judgment. It's not just about you. That's when you look out and you see the, the brokenness in the world, you see the pain in the world, you see the struggling people in the world. Give, work, draw out the nets, get behind me and let's do this together. And then I think there are the calls to, trust in him. I don't think this ends when you become a Christian, right? Like you can walk I mean, I think if you're 90 years old on your deathbed, this is something I heard recently that actually, I think it was Juliet said it at the listening session, that older people up until the time of their death say, what do I do with my life? You trust in him and you offer what you have. Sometimes it's just to like face the disease that's, that you're facing and say, how can I walk with Jesus and trust the one who I've known my whole life? And how can I share that with the family and friends that gather around me to where I, I trust in him and I move into this thing? Or for the, the people in church, um, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit in a, in a bit, but there's like you, the relationships we're called to have with one another, by the way, can take a lot of trust. And God calls us through these things into places we would not go, Okay. Anyway, so back to the calling. If you think you're an unlikely candidate for God's call, or you don't know enough Bible or theology, or it's not your natural bent, you're not an overly religious person, or even if you're just worried about the the judgment that you place on others, because you kind of see some of the issues within yourself, what does it mean that Jesus calls fishermen first? It means a lot. It means forget the categories. Jesus calls who he calls, if he's calling you, respond. It doesn't matter what's wrong with you. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how equipped you might feel. If he, if he calls you, he, he wants you. He calls the fisherman. Now to the response. I want to suggest we need to consider our response before we're Christians. When God shows up and at every stage along the way. Before we're believers... Really, I don't know where you all are at, right? Um, So first of all, I need to say, some of you think you believe, and I'm not sure if you all do. I'm not sure. Um, Famously, I'm just gonna give you a famous, uh, so John Wesley, the father of Methodism, um, the father of, you know, two-thirds of the, or maybe let's say a third of the churches in the United States at this point. His theology is behind it. Pretty big deal. Um, Charles and his brother, famously became Christians far after they had become pastors. They had gone to seminary. They had grown up in church. They were doing the whole thing. They were going through all the motions for all the wrong reasons. And then they, they finally had a conversion where things actually changed in their lives. That's um, a famous story, but there are many more. You could be in church. You can be in the ministry for all kinds of reasons other than wanting to follow Jesus, it turns out. Um, here would be a hint for just the common church goer. If this is kind of how you think about it, um, I'm looking for a good church. That's a good fit for me. I'm looking for something that feels where there's a good community and I really feel like I belong. That has nothing to do with following Jesus. Actually, they're all fine things to think about. It's normal. But that has nothing to do with following Jesus. I'm not saying go somewhere unhealthy or heretical, but I'm saying the core of the quest, if the core of the quest is to find people who affirm you and where you feel comfortable, that has nothing to do with following Jesus. You should ask where is Jesus calling me to be and what is he calling me to do? What is he calling me to offer? In the Wesley's case, you know, you could do something that's very like socially charged, you know, so they're, they're becoming ministers because it's the thing to do in their day. So many people were doing it. It's a great way to get noticed. Um, so you could be compliant as they were with kind of the religious status quo, or you could be very rebellious and just kind of be like, you're like hammering on the table of like, eh, churches do it all wrong. And it could have nothing to do with Jesus. It could have nothing to do with following Jesus. This is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 actually says to a group of Christians, it's a church, you people need to examine yourselves and ask the question, are you in the faith? Um, Why did he say that? Listen to the petty stuff they were doing that made him think he needed to beg that question. They were gossiping. They were just talking smack about each other. They were quarreling. They were arguing about stuff. They were jealous. They kind of looked at somebody else and they're like, I wish I had that life, unlike mine. Um, and they were upset with each other. And, and Paul put his diagnostic hat on and said, that smacks of not following Jesus. You should examine yourselves. How many people in churches are not following Jesus? Jesus. That's that's hidden information for some of us to some degree, but I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't say, "Church people, this is not just the message for you know the wildly chaotic people of the world. You need to ask: Have I followed? Am I following Jesus now? Have I ever? You really need to ask. So for those of you who aren't yet following Jesus, when you consider it. Um, now before you even make up your mind you te- we tend to think this I need to make up my mind and then I'll follow Jesus. This is not the case. This is not how it happened with these disciples. These disciples are at their boats catching fish. They're doing their normal stuff. They did not understand what Jesus was calling them into. They didn't have a clue. They didn't get the mission of Jesus. They didn't have a good theology of substitutionary atonement, predestination or anything else, right? Um, even after the resurrection, they needed the Holy Spirit to come and actually like descend upon them to move them into action. These guys did not have all the answers. And Mark uses the word here for conversion, kaleo, and James and John, their heart stirs, they fall in line, and they take a massive risk and do something that they do not understand. And that is the life of faith. You have to follow Jesus. Jesus. Whether this is a new concept for you or if you've been in church for like a thousand years, there is no understanding Jesus without following Jesus. There is no faith without being a disciple. If you say you have faith, James will later say, It's dead. James, the brother of Jesus. It's dead if you say you have it, but you don't do anything, meaning it doesn't exist. So if you're interested in faith, you're going to actually have to try following Jesus. This isn't an intellectual quest, not exclusively. Faith is trust. It's doing it. You can't understand until you do it. So if you're at that moment, and I know many of you have been, where you sense a stirring in you, you sense a call. It feels like he sees you from the shore. He knows who you are, what you've been wrestling with, and that you ought to do things that are impactful or important or devoted to God to know it's the right thing to do, you have to do it. And it doesn't end there. It doesn't end at conversion. Jesus calls us deeper and deeper into following him. This is where I'm inviting up Tomet. So Tomet, come on up. She's gonna tell us this uh, this story that impacted her faith years ago and exhibits this truth that it doesn't stop at just becoming a believer. Um, And I think there's a unique... Uh, beauty in here about Jesus calling us by name. So, Timet, take it away.
1: As some of you know, Roland and I belong to a Christian drama ministry. Our founder and director wrote all of the plays that we used. His vision was that instead of us going in with a preset program, we could talk to the leadership of each church or school or other organization that wanted to use us and find out their needs to tie in with what they were teaching and minister to what their people needed my team one time went to a church and we had called ahead to the pastor he asked us to do a program on forgiveness so we prayed about it and chose some plays to do one of the plays we chose was about a young woman who was a missionary in the Philippines It's about a fictional character. Her name is Carrie Kimberly. And she had been arrested. The police thought that she was a spy. She was tried and convicted. And she was awaiting her execution. The play takes place in her jail cell. And she's trying to come to terms not only with her execution, but also with the command to forgive those who are executing her. She's pacing her jail cell, talking to herself and praying, saying, Carrie Kimberly, you can do this. Carrie Kimberly, you know this can be done. God, please help me. And as she prayed and talked to herself, God showed her that she could do this. He reminded her of how Jesus went to the cross and forgave his enemies, and she did the same. And so she was ready for what was to happen next. After the program, our team went to the back of the church, and we were saying goodnight to everyone as they were leaving. They were thanking us for coming. Some had comments about the different plays we did, and we had a a prayer or two with a couple of people. At the end of the group, the pastor came out of the sanctuary, and he came over to me and asked me to come in with him. We stepped into the sanctuary, and I saw at the altar two teenage girls who were kneeling and praying, and they were surrounded by six or seven other people from the church. The pastor said to Matt, these two girls are from different families, but they are experiencing the same things. Their families are very hostile to their faith. They make fun of them all the time. The parents wouldn't give them Bibles, so we got Bibles for them. Their parents won't bring them to church or youth events or anything. This team of people around them is set up specifically just to bring them back and forth to church and to youth events so that they can participate. And they had come to me recently and said that it was becoming too difficult to follow God. The abuse they suffered at home, the name-calling, the mocking— They'd be in church and see their friends who had loving, supporting families, and they wondered, why them and not me? And they found themselves becoming more resentful and bitter, angry towards their parents, and questioning God. And the pastor said, after your program, they both came to me and said they needed to pray. They knew they needed to forgive their parents. They knew they could with God's help and they knew they could be reconciled with God and grow stronger in their faith. And so, of course, I'm crying as I hear him tell this story. And then he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, Matt, you need to know this. Her name is Carrie, and her name is Kimberly.
0: Isn't that cool? <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Yeah, when uh when Timet shared that with me, I was uh I was encouraged. You have this moment where you say like God knew what they were going through. He knew their names, right? Um I also remembered when I heard Timet tell that story before that sometimes the hardest calls of Jesus uh don't come at the big conversion moment or when you're supposed to go, you know, overseas or something like that. A former pastor of mine said something to this effect. He said, "I used to think the hardest call would be to be a missionary across the world to lay down everything. But as I've walked and walked with people, I've, lear- I've learned, I've realized the harder call is sometimes to forgive, to trust and to walk into my own securities, my own insecurities, to risk being rejected and misunderstood. People run from God's call into that kind of stuff all the time. right? That tends to be be some of the stuff that faces us over and over. And isn't isn't that true? See, Jesus doesn't just call his disciples to believe at the beginning. It's the life of faith. It's an over and over again experience. It's what we so often resist along the way. The life of faith is also, you know, will you follow me out of the chaos in the middle of this life of faith? It's not just a one-time, ah, you're out, you're safe, you're good. It's a continual trusting, a continual following, a continual journey of lining up behind Jesus. So I hope you sense this applies to all of us. Jesus calls us to follow him like Andrew and Simon Peter. He knows who we are, what we do, and how to call us directly. He doesn't call the likely ones. He calls unlikely people. So none of you are exempt. Right? Like James and John, he might call you when you aren't even looking. He knows even the stirrings inside of you. And when he calls you to faith, you have to follow him because the faith is in the following. You won't know until you follow. And the calling isn't just something that comes at the front end. Um, and we'll see so much more of this in the book of Mark. As uh, Tamette just illustrated in her story, the calling to follow Jesus comes to us again and again in the life of faith. Um, and, conc- and can include things that might seem even small and like insignificant, but they're not. He will call us over and over and he knows our name. So follow him. Of course, years later, his disciples joined Jesus for dinner in the upper room um, and he'd been alluding to his death uh, in in some of their conversations, but they didn't understand. Um, They didn't have a good theology, right? Of the substitutionary atonement and uh, what was coming. So they followed him into a room to a table, and he took bread and he broke it, and he said, This is my body broken for you. Every time you eat it, remember me. And they did not know what they were going to be remembering. They didn't, but they took and ate what he handed to them, right? And he took the wine from the table and wine, by the way, kind of similar to the sea, was often associated with judgment. You know, the Lord treads the wine press of his wrath in the Old Testament, but also has this beautiful layer of meaning. It's tied to feasting and wholeness and joy. And Jesus said, this is my blood. It's shed for the forgiveness of many, clearly saying, I am about to bear the judgment that people deserve upon myself. Every time you drink of it, remember me, and I won't drink of it again until I drink it with you and my kingdom. He's kind of saying you, you have to go through, you have to go through this hard stuff to have the joy that's set before us, and I'll be there. Follow me through the chaos, and I'll be there waiting for you, and I'll be with you by my spirit in between now and then. And then after that, Jesus would be arrested, crucified, and buried. And those disciples never sat down at a table and drank wine with him again in their lifetime. But they did continue to follow him, awaiting the day when he would make things new. And that's where we are. That is our calling. Have you heard his call? For the first time, for the hundredth time, follow him. Next, I'm going to pray, and there will be uh, two minutes of silence after this. We'll do our three weekly acts of worship that the Christian church has always done. Uh, we will practice giving. Um, this is our opportunity to really, it, it is an assertion that says, I worship uh, Jesus. Even with the the very like funds that, that make my life possible, I give to him from, from the very beginning and say, everything I have belongs to you. Um, it's our assertion that, the calling of God's people, all of us, is to cast those nets and to, to do the work of bringing people out of darkness into light. That's what our church is here for. It's a huge piece of this. It's, it's not just a fellowship center. It really isn't. So we pool our funds. We say, we're going to do this. We're going to do this together. Uh, we're going to sing together. The singing is meant to take these truths and drop them in deeper into our souls so that we would believe them with all of our hearts. And then we're going to partake of the Lord's table. And as you heard me say today, um, this is an act of faith. And so I really do want to say, like, take it seriously. We Christians take it seriously. But also, at the same time, if you, if you sense, I, I want to follow Jesus, that's really all you need to say to him. You don't need to be any better than that. So if you're ready to follow Jesus, you can come and receive him by faith. Um, I, even alluding back to Timet's story, there's some instances in the scripture where it says, before you come and partake of this bread and wine, reconcile with your brother or sister. Why is that? Because that's an exercise of following Jesus. To say, I'm, I'm going to hear his call again in my life. So the next two minutes will be silent and it's just time for you to pray and to search your heart, to speak to Jesus about any of these things. And then Mike will bring us back in with some music and you'll notice people starting to line up to receive the Lord's Supper. And if you can say by faith, I wanna follow him, then you're welcome. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to be together here and to worship you. I pray that as we consider these things that we would hear your call, um, no matter what stage we're at, that we would be responsive to you, that you would give us faith um, to trust in you that we would hear your voice and respond, that we, would, that we might seek to understand that we would first of all seek to know you and to love you and to follow you and obey you. I pray that you would guide us now as we pray in Jesus' name.